This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 30th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week I'm going to talk to you about a few developments that occurred in this week regarding federal tax matters. We had a couple of things happen this week. First, as you probably are aware, the IRS officially opened up the filing season. We'll discuss what they announced, aside from the fact that, yes, they started taking the returns this week, but they've done that. They also opened up a second new option, something new, that they finally got open uh, rather late, but that will be the ability to file information returns via their IRIS portal. Now, as we'll note, if you hadn't already signed up to be able to be a transmitter under older systems, you're not really going to be able to use this system for 22 returns unless you're filing late. But it will provide options going forward, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Finally, we'll close out with the discussion of a corporation that was forced to get a private letter ruling to enable it to continue to have its S status and also to continue to recognize its two subchapter S or qualified subchapter S uh, corporations, Q-subs, Q-subs as qualified subsidiaries of the S corporation. Obviously, you can't be a Q-sub if the top entity is not an S corporation. And we'll discuss the problem here. This time, the problem was that they hadn't gotten all the consents. And more importantly, we want to discuss why in the world do we see these rulings? Because I'm going to tell you every time I discuss any of these rulings, and I've discussed them over the years because they happen virtually every week, the IRS is issuing these private letter rulings, giving somebody retroactive S relief. I keep getting said, well, the IRS never raises this on exam, so it's not a practical question. And my answer to that is very simple. Explain to me why people are paying five figures to get private letter rulings for not practical issues. And I think we'll discuss again. The reason for that is has nothing to do with the IRS killing off S corporations on exam. It's a different problem we're dealing with here. That's not really what the IRS is doing, but more what somebody else will be doing to your client that potentially could put you at risk if you haven't noticed their S elections invalid. So let's start with the announcement we had this week, IRS news release IR 2023-11, which was issued on the 23rd, which was the kickoff date for electronic filing, entitled, The IRS Kicks Off the 2023 Tax Filing Season with Returns Due April 18th. Now, obviously, as we knew from the announcement last week, the IRS did officially kick off everything on the 23rd. It's nice to know the computers all worked and actual returns have been filed and accepted. Now, as we all know, it's going to take quite a while before A, the IRS is able to accept all forms, B, our states that we have to file with are able to accept all forms, and C, our tax software is able to actually deal with those forms and send them to the taxing agencies. But as it stands right now, relatively simple returns can be electronically filed. Those that have more complicated items or less used forms, yeah, like normal, those will take a bit longer. And clearly, anything impacted by any of the year in law changes I don't really think the Secure 2.0 Act really did anything that should foul up the filing season too much. Um, and I think that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act provisions were early enough that that also shouldn't cause a major problem for those things there that affected 22. But you never know. Still, it takes a while and not all IRS forms are there at the same time. Now, the IRS notes a couple of things they tell people about when they're talking to them about the start of the return. They, again, strongly recommend against filing paper returns. 
I've told clients, and I'll tell anybody at this point, that filing a paper return is a pretty good way of making sure your return will not be processed very quickly. If you go with a paper return, please don't come back and complain to me. Oh, wait, I, I, I need a, I need, you know, some sort of document from the IRS so my return has been accepted. It's like, you know, because I'm getting a mortgage or whatever other thing. It's like, tough luck. They're, they're not going to move it very quickly. It's going to take time. Probably far less time than it has in the past couple of years, but still more time than the others. The other problem is we see a lot more issues with paper filed returns in terms of issues, notices, things that just, yeah, it, you know, the return said X, but somehow the IRS believes it's Y. That's almost always due to various entry errors, coding errors, whatever that goes into the system. The IRS also reminds taxpayers who are claiming the earned income tax credit or the additional child tax credit that their refunds are going to be delayed as they have been for a number of years. That is why you can file your returns right now. Your refunds aren't going to come out until mid-February at the earliest and likely all of those with the backlog, they won't all get done until the IRS believes if there's no other problem with the return, they should get those out by the end of February. But those returns, those refunds are not coming out quickly. So obviously if your client has never had those before, you know, and this is the one year they run into doing it, you might warn them that their refund is not going to pop in their bank account as quickly as it used to. Same basic problem. Also, the IRS reminds everybody, and we always have to remind ourselves, that this year's deadline is April the 18th. Again, that works because April the 15th is a Saturday. April the 16th is therefore a Sunday. So that means the 17th is what we need. And the 17th, uh, it's going to be therefore, since the 16th is normally Emancipation Day in District of Columbia, obviously that's also on the weekend, so the District of Columbia will kick that to the 17th. And many, many years ago, Congress tied what's going to be filing deadlines and delays in filing deadlines to holidays in the District of Columbia. So that's why, well, and also in addition to any IRS offices, which is also why we got that whole Patriots Day deal that we used to have up in, or we, I guess we may still have up in Massachusetts, um, that kind of causes a weird filing date there as well. But in any event, it will be the 18th this year. I don't know if you consider that good news or bad news. Usually I consider it bad news because it means we've got a weekend in front of it where we're supposed to try to get everything filed. Clients will believe you got extra days to file and they'll want to get everything done. So, you know, all that stuff. And I don't want to return to go on extension. Uh, hint, th this year I expect a lot of clients are going to be suddenly disappointed because the returns are going on extension. I assume everybody has probably by now heard of the Wall Street Journal article from the end of December that told us that 17% of accountants left the profession last year and there's nowhere near enough coming in to replace those that left. So as it stands right now, and at least based on the phone calls I'm getting, there are a whole bunch of people looking for new accountants to prepare their tax returns, and they're discovering that they're not easily finding people who will accept new clients. That's been a bigger problem these days. Next up, another announcement from the IRS, a news relief. This came in, in, in IRS news release IR 2023-14, issued on the 25th. And it's entitled, The IRS Opens Free Portal to File Information Returns. New electronic option can reduce millions of paper forms 1099 estimated to be filed by businesses in 2023. Uh, and that was on January 25th. Now, I'm not so sure that wording works properly because if you, if you weren't already set up to file electronically, you're not really going to qualify to file via IRIS 
because you have to go through the process to get a to get a transmitter code. And as the IRS will tell you when you follow that up, well, that's going to take 45 days. And even if you have no 1099 NECs and you're only filing the other 1099s that give you an extra day, well, an extra month, that's like, there's really not time there. So I suspect it's not going to make major difference this year, but could make a difference in the future. Now, this portal had been promised for quite a while. It was coming real soon now. Real soon now did arrive this week on the 25th of January. So if you are, if you do have the transmitter control information in place, yes, you can use the new system. It's available. As I said, though, if you're not already registered, you don't have a transmitter control code, you're not able to use it until you go through a process that will take, according to the IRS, approximately 45 days to complete. So yeah, you're not getting it anytime soon. I would go ahead and get those 1099s filed on Monday because we know we have to get them mailed out by Monday, by, you know, I should say on Tuesday. I would you know, have to get them mailed out by Tuesday to the recipient. So I'd probably go ahead and take care of it all right now. And then go ahead and figure out how to make this system work next year, potentially in this case, because yes, it is coming up kind of late. Now, this is a free option. So it's one of those things where anybody can access it, including the businesses. Um, it can be done either by filing in bulk using a standard format for uploading, or you can do a data entry on the site if you have just a few 1099s put out. And I think a lot of us who have smaller clients have, you know, we have situations where the client might need to file one or two 1099s every year, nothing major. Well, that's the case. This will allow them an option to go in and get those returns filed without having to go find some place in office supply store to get, you know, those pink copies of the forms to send in so they could be scanned by the IRS. Now we're just going to be able to uh, do it online electronically, an option for that to go forward. Finally, this this week, and yes, it'll be a relatively short uh, session this week because there really wasn't a lot that went on. There were a couple of court cases, none of which were major league as far as I was concerned. Um, you know, they, they really didn't tell us it was a district court case. It may have been slightly interesting in terms of what was FBAR and would qualify for willful or non-willful violation. But Again, it's a small, it's a district court case, which is always kind of interesting generally, and they sometimes are inconsistent. So it's usually best to wait for the uh, court of appeals case if one comes up to get a better idea of what might apply otherwise. But in this case, we're looking at a private letter ruling 2023-04004 issued on January the 27th. So one issued to us on Friday. And this is a case where we have a corporation which was formed and it sent in a 2553. It made a nest selection. Then shortly thereafter, it formed a couple of subsidiary corporations and it made Q sub elections on behalf of those subsidiaries. Now, the only problem we had with this structure was it turned out they did not obtain all of the shareholder consents that were necessary. Now, there are various reasons for this, not the least of which is you have to be careful if you have, you know, depending upon types of shareholders you have, you have to make sure you've gotten the proper consent. For instance, if, if you have a potential, you know, qualified subchapter S trust, then you need to have the beneficiary's consent. If you don't have an electing small business trust, you need the trustee's consent. And one that often gets overlooked, uh, at least if you don't have a practice in community property states, is that if any of your shareholders are married and they reside in a community property state, 
the odds are overwhelming that that stock is community property. And if it is, you need the signatures of both spouses. You can't just get the one spouse's signature, even if, as far as you're concerned, you issued stock to, let's say, to Linda and not, not to Wayne or husband. So Linda should be the only one I need a signature from. Well, that may be fine if Linda's in Oklahoma. May not be so fine if Linda is here in Arizona, because at that point we have more of a problem. So we're going to talk a little bit about how all that works out, you know, but basically they didn't get all necessary consents. Now that's a potentially big problem here because what's going to happen is not only is our S election blown so that they are now a C corporation, but their Q subs aren't Q subs and Q subs are generally disregarded, but you want to be a qualified S corporation subsidiary. If you're an S corp, if you know, if you're, owner, 100% owner of the one shareholder is itself an S corporation. If that corporation is not S, you're a wholly owned subsidiary, which you could have made an election to be part of a consolidated return, but A, you didn't really make that election, and B, there was not a consolidated C corp return. So this could get rather messy with a lot of, you know, messy things with three corporations, no elections, all kinds of mess could be in here. So for that reason, we have a problem. Now, the IRS in this case did grant the relief requested, but it did say not only did you have to get signatures from all the shareholders you should have gotten signatures from when you know we made the election, but you also need to have signatures from everybody who had been a shareholder from that first day all the way through the day that the IRS is granting the relief. And the reason for that is arguably fairly simple. Uh, you know, basically those people in theory might want to try to argue, well, oh, no, 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 it wasn't Valdez Corporation. So, you know, I really shouldn't be forced to pick up that income. Now, the corporation has said already everybody picked up income. But because those people, you know, in essence, if the IRS grants this, those shareholders are going to lose rights. The IRS is requiring that those shareholders, so if you had somebody that you brought in as a shareholder after the initial botched election, that person will also need to give their consent, at least in this case, for the IRS to grant this relief. Now, as I said, the question always arises when I talk about these is, well, this just isn't practical. I mean, I've been in practice for fill in the blank, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever the time period is. And I have never had the IRS do an exam on S corporation where they ever looked at these sort of details and never have even worried about whether the initial election was valid. They simply don't care about that. And I don't disagree with that statement. I've never had that exam either. But nevertheless, as I said, we have this continuing number of these cases coming up. Why are people, if this is no big deal, if this is one of those things that theoretical, but never actually get ra gets raised on exam, why in the world are these people paying relatively big fees, you know, in user fees to the IRS to get these rulings, plus pay the fees to professionals to walk these rulings through the system? Why would you do that for something that just doesn't matter? Because I'm sure there are taxpayers that violate other provisions of the law. And yet, you know, we don't see them going back and trying to get things fixed. Why are these people trying to get things fixed? The simple answer, which this is the reason why you need to be aware of this, is because these tend to come up 
when a buyer arrives for the S corporation and does their due diligence. That due diligence study, often conducted by an international accounting firm, tends to uncover, well, especially if that if the buyer is a large public company who will bring in that international firm to do the review, they tend to uncover these flaws because they go back with a fine-tooth comb and look to see if there's any problem the their client might be inheriting. And as I tell people all the time, big companies do not generally ever for any, any reason take on even the smallest risk that was not something they created and for which they got no advantage, right? They might do things that are risky. They might do things otherwise, but they're not going to take on their own risk. So, you know, in this case, there's no real advantage to them taking this on. It's somebody else's problem. And since the problem can be fixed, well, they're going to say, go get it fixed. And that's really why I know, at least in a number of cases, these rulings tend to come out. And I would be somewhat surprised if that wasn't, if that something of that sort was not the driving force here. Because obviously, this is not one, and there aren't cases out there where the IRS has blown up these elections. So I do suspect it is that super due diligence. And you may say, well, you know, the buyer shouldn't care. But here's the catch. The buyer is going to write a check for $30, $40 million, whatever they're buying, you know, whatever number you're talking about. Could be $20 million, $30 million, $40 million, maybe even if it's, quote, just $2 million, they're still writing that check to the, to the seller. And they're going to come up and say, well, here's the catch. Either you get rid of this problem or we're not buying the company. We're going to go look for somebody else who didn't foul this up, you know, to buy their company. We, we think we can find some other option here. And secondly, they probably know, which usually is true, you know, when a client's looking at selling the business and they made the decision, oh yeah, I'm all for doing this. I'm going to get this check for, you know, $16 million, $30 million, whatever, $40 million. I'm going to be getting this check to sell my business. They already figure out what they're doing with it. So when the buyer comes back and says, yeah, we just complete our due diligence and you don't have an S corporation. So we need this fixed or the sales off. That puts a lot of pressure on. And the other big problem is it quickly occurs to the buyer or the seller. Wait a minute. You know, how come I'm in this position? I, I had this attorney work with me and draft the corporation. I had the attorney and the, uh, you know, CPA or EA, you know, handle the handle the application. And, you know, my CPA or EA has been preparing the return every year. How come none of them ever told me but this other company, the, this this firm, you know, the, the CPA firm, big one, obviously, awfully big one, comes in and suddenly they found this and now my whole sale is about to disappear. And when I ask my CPA about it or the attorney about it, I tend to get a lot of, well, this isn't normally really a problem and they shouldn't worry about it. And I'm still looking at the fact they're not going to give me a check, right? I'm losing that check and they are fairly insistent. I'm not going to get the check unless this gets fixed. So what tends to happen is, to be totally honest, uh, the seller who feels cheated by his professionals will look for the professionals to pay all the fees for getting this done. So that's where the problems arise. As I said, not really a problem with the IRS coming back in saying, hey guys, you know, yep, we're going to throw out this S election. We're going to kill it. No, they're not doing it. Rather, it is this problem where buyers come in on due diligence 
and they're the ones who tend to force these issues. So for that reason, it is important that if you do S-Corp clients, and there are a lot of people with a lot of S-Corp clients, if you do them, then you do need to have some concern over whether their elections are valid. And the things you have to look for for valid election, including this was unusual. I haven't seen this lack of proper consents for a while. But the other ways you tend to get it is they foul up with their documents, you know, their, their legal documents, and they end up creating under federal law what's considered to be a second class of stock, where, you know, every shareholder or LLC unit holder does not have an identical right to distributions in, in regular operations and in liquidation. An easy way we see that fouled up if you're in a state like Arizona, where it is popular to use LLCs as S-corporation structures. And the reason here is because corporations have to report their owners on a public document every year, while S-corporations do not. Or not S-corporations, but I say LLCs do not. They just report the people that were there at formation. So, voila, you know, if, if, if you are that type of person who is very, shall we say, paranoid, and you really think that people are somehow are going to gain some huge important knowledge by knowing that you own 25% or 30% of this corporation, you form as an S corporation, which is great. But the risk of the partnership, the LLC documents being written, assuming it's a partnership, is super high unless you have legal counsel involved who totally understands how you have to draft these differently. As you may remember, a couple weeks ago, we had a case where, just like this, another private letterman request, where the problem was they had a partnership operating agreement, or I should say an LLC operating agreement, that included the 704B capital account language, which, gang, that's automatic, not an S-corporation if you have more than one equity holder. Just basically, it's gone, game, set, match. So you want to be sure you've been aware and you've looked at those issues. So anyway, it's kind of the fun how things go. Well, like I said, we, we've got this week. Not a whole lot happened this week. Uh, I will be doing my final few sessions. I've got a couple things to do. I think my, my final two sessions, uh, full day sessions, are actually Monday and Tuesday for Arizona. I have no more public full day sessions. I have a couple of sessions for firm training coming up. And I have some webinars coming up uh, that'll be there, including one coming up for Hawaii on K2 and K3 in the middle of February. That's Darius. So if we're getting into that mode, um, but, you know, but not a whole lot because we're getting into tax season. So obviously CPE does not become popular in tax season unless Congress, unless the IRS or Congress does something that really fouls up the tax season, which we're hoping they don't do this year. We will hope for the best. So otherwise, hopefully you're having a good start to your season. Hopefully you got returns filed and uh, you know, you're beginning to get the e-file stuff that's working for you. You're getting your initial tax software kinks out of the way. You're installing all those updates they keep sending you now because everything keeps changing so rapidly and getting all that together. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. I also do follow the uh, Connect groups on the New Jersey Society of CPAs website. Uh, for their group, I follow the Connect site on Arizona, same thing, as well as those groups on the societies for Minnesota and Washington. Uh, I will also be monitoring the discussion group for Idaho Society to see if there's anything there that comes up. 
Otherwise, we'll be back here, I assume, next week, see how things run and see how things go. And we'll talk to you about what's going on. And if anything big happens next week, we'll talk about it. But otherwise, have a good week. We'll see you then. And we'll talk about current federal tax development.